let me describe for you how the evening is going to go. <clears throat> I'm going to introduce our panelists, and we're going to then see a short film from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which is the largest private oceanographic institution in the world, and one of the best. After we see that film, our panelists will join us on stage, and we will have a discussion about super corals, what they are, where they're found, why they're important, what we know about what makes them distinctive, and after the panel discussion, we will turn it open to you and, and try to address any questions any of you might have. Then we will go right next door into the Ocean Science Center, and we will have a reception, and we will watch the science on a sphere experience that uh, deals with super corals and that uh, two of our panelists were very instrumental in creating. So, <clears throat> the, uh, then I want to introduce the president of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, <clears throat> excuse me, Mark Abbott, before going to Woods Hole, Mark spent 17 years as the dean, is that right? 14, 14, I exaggerate. 14 years as a dean and a distinguished professor at Oregon State University, and he's been at Woods Hole now for four, about, about four. And he's going to introduce the film that we're going to see about super corals. It's about five minutes long, I think, and then we'll get on with our panel discussion. Mark? Okay, thank you very much, Jerry, and thanks for having me here. I'm a California kid who was born down the road here in, in Whittier a long time ago. Uh, went up to Palo Alto, so you can say did both the NorCal and the SoCal thing. And so Jerry's used to be an East Coaster, now he's a West Coaster, been here for a long time, but I think one of the key things that really for both of us, there's only one ocean, and it links us all together, and it's really an important part of our planet. And so we, and we call it HUI, W-H-O-I, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Uh, it's really driven by scientists and engineers who have great passion and creativity, not only for their science, but how it can help us become uh, better stewards of our this one ocean world that we live on. And Ann Cohen is just one of the nearly 150 scientists uh, that we have at Hui. And her passion is really driven by understanding coral reefs and how we can actually use that knowledge to preserve this precious and unique resource, not only just for us, but for the people who live on those islands and depend on those reefs for their cultural and economic survival. And Anne will say she came to Hui because of the creativity, the imagination, the ability to go out and study and follow the science and wherever the science took her. And so tonight, you know, this is an important uh, message that Hui really wants to share with the world. We're proud of our partnership with the Aquarium of, of the Pacific because this really is a message of hope. People think about coral bleaching. Uh, 20 years ago, we were worried about the crown of thorns and invasive species, overfishing, dynamiting of coral reefs, et cetera. But what Anne and her colleagues have really shown is that there's really an opportunity here to use science to come up with new ways to preserve and enhance uh, this precious asset. So tonight we're going to introduce a movie, it's called Super Reefs, The Future of Corals. It's a short film uh, that was produced with the support of one of our trustee members, Linda Salop, uh, with the Woods Hole Film Festival and Northern Lights Productions, and hope you enjoy the film. And we'll so show be, it. Before we show it, 
And let me introduce the others. So Mark was trained as a biological oceanographer, but much, most of his work has been in the interactions of the biology and the physics in, in the world ocean. And Ann Cohen went to Woods Hole made, as a, a postdoctoral fellow. Now she's a tenured associate scientist. She's one of the world's leading experts on cor coral reefs and also on, on super corals. And she was instrumental in organizing, facilitating, and summarizing the workshop we had at the aquarium back in December about super corals and also was instrumental in, in writing that report. Sandy Troutwine, who is our VP for Animal Husbandry. Sandy's been here since before the aquarium opened. Uh, she's responsible for, for all 11,000 of our animals. Uh, she's responsible, I guess, for everything that swims or, or flies. Or, or <laughs> and she also is an expert on uh, coral reefs and has done research and conservation programs in a number of places around the world, uh, including Guam, where we've done projects for a number of years. And, and Sandy was also instrumental in the workshop on super corals and in the preparation of the report. And so what, one of your trustees or supported the creation of this film? Back on. That was Linda Salop. She's a new trustee, and she was really, she and Anne have built up a partnership. And Linda said, "Let's let's put together a movie." So and and so the the science on sphere experience that you're going to see, that was supported by the chair of our board, who's in the audience, Kathy Eckert. And so our partnerships with our board members and our trustees are critically important to the programs that we all do. So let let's go out here where we can see it and go ahead and roll the film. are truly the rainforests of the ocean. An estimated nine million species from microbes to manta rays and thousands of types of fish. They're all there because of the corals. 500 million people around the world also depend on coral reefs for food, creating land, and protecting coastlines. Corals may even contain new medicines to cure age-old diseases. The problem now is that Earth's climate is changing very fast. The oceans are warming much faster than ever before. So the big question is whether the corals can adapt. Across the tropics, ocean warming is driving the loss of coral reefs at an unprecedented rate, jeopardizing land food, and lives. Some reefs, however, are defying the odds. There's corals that are living, are still alive here. We are finding some reefs that are not dying, that appear to be figuring out how to cope with this warming. 
but coral reefs are spread across a huge area of tropical ocean. So how do we know which of those reefs are resilient? What we're learning is that the corals themselves contain important clues. One important clue to how a reef will respond to future warming is how it has responded to past heat waves. What we do is we go out and we take a biopsy of the reef and we come home with a skeletal core. And to look inside the core, we CAT scan them. What we're looking for are these bright white bands called stress bands. These bands form when the reef is bleaching. Coral polyps get most of their energy and color from tiny plant-like algae that live inside them. When the water gets too warm, corals expel the algae, exposing their white skeletons. Bleached corals are essentially starving to death. But some coral reefs are more heat tolerant than others. We found some reefs with absolutely no stress bands. These reefs should have bleached, but they haven't. In other cases, we found reefs that have bleached repeatedly over time, but they seem capable of recovering quickly. We believe that these corals are adapting. These coral reefs are what we call the super reefs, and they must be protected because they have the best chance of surviving. Every super reef should be in a marine protected area. No fishing, no dynamiting, no uh, dredging, uh, etc. all of the things that uh, destroy coral reefs. What's being done in Palau and uh, Phoenix Islands is a good model going forward for other places that we identify as hosting super reefs. By protecting super reefs, what we're doing is we're protecting the climate resilient corals. And those corals are gonna reproduce and their larvae are gonna travel on the ocean currents to far-flung neighboring reefs that have been devastated by climate change. And those larvae are gonna grow into small corals, they're gonna grow into bigger colonies, and over time, that reef is gonna come back. And it could come back more temperature tolerant than it was before. Many coral reef countries want to protect their super reefs, but we don't necessarily know where all the super reefs are, so the first step is to go out there and find them, and then work with the governments of coral reef nations to incorporate those climate resilient reefs into marine protected areas. All our decisions have to be based on good science, and the survival of coral in the future is under great threat. Now is the time to act, to ensure that coral reefs have a future.
mentioned the workshop that we had, and um, we have copies of the report. If you would like to get a copy, you could give your name and email address to Linda Brown in the back, and we will get a copy to you. The other output was the Science on a Sphere experience, which we'll, you, you will see later this evening. And the third is the commitment that we made to create a live exhibit showing super corals and a back of the house facility that would have super corals from around the, the ocean, the world ocean, that would be available to researchers to study whether there's something special genetically about them that makes them climate resilient. So, but um, it all starts with a warming ocean. And um, so I guess, Mark, we'll start with you. What is it that's causing the ocean to get warmer? Okay, well, I think we all have seen that. We know that uh, part of it is just the long trend of coming out of a, an ice age 10,000 years ago, so the planet is warming, but we know that human activity has really accelerated that dramatically, largely because of uh, fossil fuel use, uh, deforestation, cement, etc. things that have added carbon dioxide to the ocean, to the atmosphere, which just acts like a blanket. And so the ocean is really the memory of the Earth's system. It stores most of the carbon, it has most of the water, and it has most of the heat. So a lot of the energy that we're trapping eventually gets into, stays in the ocean, and it's there for a long time. And we're starting to see changes in the amount of uh, seasonal ice cover in the Arctic. We're starting to see circulation uh, changes, and more importantly, changes in ecosystems, both coral reefs. Uh, we're seeing fisheries shift northward in many areas, in the, for example, in the Atlantic. Uh, used to catch a lot of lobsters off uh, Massachusetts, now they're all off Maine, moving into Nova Scotia. So we're seeing these changes driven by a warming atmosphere, which warms the ocean and changes the, the circulation uh, of the ocean and then affects ecosystems. That's not a very hopeful message. Now, the, so these super corals, there, there's got to be some upper limit for even for them that they couldn't tolerate. So are there prospects that we can slow down the rate of warming, or if what, what would those be? Well, you know, in your beautiful new theater, <laughs> I think you talk about that a lot. I think we can look at new ways of generating energy to meet the needs of a growing population. Uh, I think we can look at growing, I'm losing my battery here, speaking of energy generation on the microphone. I'll just talk loud. So uh, we certainly can look at re thinking how we generate energy for the planet, and I think we are starting to think about ways of removing uh, carbon from the atmosphere as well. So I think there is hope. I think that there are ways to produce uh, protein for a growing population, relying more on the ocean than the land, and so there are great opportunities. And so the, clearly, science and engineering and technology have to play major roles in this. Say a little bit. Uh, about that. Yeah, that's actually one thing that Woods Hole Oceanographic really specializes in. I like to say we go to impossible places to do impossible things. Uh, going into the depths of the ocean, the, the highest latitudes, uh, anywhere that people can make measurements. I think technology is really going to give us that vision and understanding of what's going on in the ocean to be able to make 
those kinds of predictions and help people make decisions just like we have with weather forecasts today. Uh, we don't have that at this point, but we're starting to build networks uh, of ocean observing systems so that we can begin to live with our ocean. New technologies for aquaculture and energy uh, generation are, are just some of the new technologies that are com going to come out from ocean research. And what was it about this particular project of super corals that appealed to you as the president? So this is really sort of a, a new, new way to expand our footprint, to a deeper level of engagement with both policy and with the public. And that's where this partnership with aquariums like uh, the Aquarium of the Pacific here is really important for us because ultimately it's all about people. It's not just scientists talking to scientists and a few federal agencies, but really getting us all, all eventually all 10 billion of us, working together to be better stewards. And aquariums are really that great sort of front line of bringing the ocean to people and bringing people to understand that it's more than just seeing waves on the beach. And I think your educational and research mission plays very nicely into this. Super reefs, it's a message where science actually is not just doom and gloom, there's actually hope here. And that's a really important message that we want to get out. If hope and some hope certainly is essential if we're going to affect large-scale change on the, the way, at the scale that's needed to put us onto a different trajectory. And we're delighted to have this partnership with HUI. So, Anne, in all of your years of research on corals, coral reefs, are there any things that you think would surprise this audience that we have here? Um, hi, Jerry. <laughs> Thanks so much to you and Linda and uh, the Aquarium of the Pacific for hosting us um, this evening, and thank you all for coming. Uh, the question is, I've been working on corals and coral reefs for 25 years. Is there anything that I know that might surprise you? Um, probably a lot. Uh, I don't know how many of you have gone diving or snorkeling on a coral reef um, and looked really closely at a coral, a little coral animal. Uh, you might not know that coral animals uh, that build these reefs, that actually build the Great Barrier Reef, is a tiny little um, creature that is basically a Ziploc bag full of water <laughs> with tentacles and a mouth. Um, and it, it's about a millimeter in diameter. They're actually absolutely tiny, but they're working uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, making little calcium carbonate crystals, and those crystals accumulate together, and over thousands of years, they build reefs. And corals come uh, as boys and girls, males and females. Uh, the females in many species, they actually get pregnant and they grow the babies in their stomachs. And then at the full moon, um, the mother coral, who has passed about 70% of her fat to her babies, releases these little, what we call, planular larvae from their mouths at the full moon. And the planular larvae are little, little balls of fat, and they get swept on the ocean currents and transport it to a new, um, a new world, a new land, where they settle, and they metamorphose, and they start to grow. And that's the beginning of the new coral reef. That's the beginning of Bermuda. That's the beginning of the Virgin Islands. That's the beginning of the Great Barrier Reef. All the places that you're familiar with all come from 
this little baby coral that got released from its mother under the full moon. Pretty cool. <laughs> That's some things I learned over about 25 years. <laughs> what percentage of our tropical coral reefs have, have we lost already? Uh, so we estimate about 50% of coral reef surface area right. has been irretrievably lost. Um, and the projection is that we could lose, what, by the end of the century? Uh, significantly more, um, and not just by the end of the century. I mean, we're looking at the next three or four decades. Right. I think um, the latest projections are losing coral reefs as we know them by about 2040. Um, which is, which is oh, devastating. And in terms of ocean life, not, not the, the tourist attractions and all mm -hmm. that, or the beautiful places to dive on, what, what's the significance of the coral reefs to supporting healthy marine ecosystems? Well, that's a really good question. There's, there's many, many, many coral reefs all across the global oceans. In fact, the Great Barrier Reef um, is made up of 3,000 different reefs, different coral reefs. And there's many of those across the global ocean, but together they only make up about 1%. They take up about 1% of the surface area of the ocean floor. So they're not taking up very much space, but they're actually supporting 25% of all the marine species that are found in the ocean, are actually found on coral reefs. Isn't that incredible? A quarter of all the species in the ocean are congregating on those coral reefs all because that little planula larva <laughs> got released from its mother and built a reef. But it's not only um, animals that depend on coral reefs for their survival. Almost one-fifth of the global human population derives livelihood, their livelihood from coral reefs. So the impact of coral reefs taking up 1% of the surface of the, of the ocean is absolutely enormous for humanity and all Earth's creatures. So they have a pretty big responsibility, and we have a pretty big responsibility trying to protect them. What, what have we learned so far about what makes super corals more resistant to high temperature than normal corals? Thanks for the question, Jerry. So, so far we've, we've discovered about um, 11 different super reef systems. And what we mean by super reef systems, these aren't just individual corals that can survive climate change. These are whole uh, coral assemblages, or large areas of reef that have lots of different kinds of corals in them, um, that have all the little creatures that live inside the corals, that have fish. So these are ecosystems, these super reefs. Um, some of them, we now know, the corals on those reefs are actually genetically different. And they're genetically different in a way that makes them more tolerant to heat. So for example, we were talking about Palau earlier at dinner. Palau is a coral reef island in the um, far western Pacific. It's about a four-hour fl flight south of Japan, and if you have never been there, you should try to go because it's probably the most beautiful place on Earth. But Palau is also home to uh, super reefs in areas called the Rock Islands. And in two different massive heat waves that destroyed about 80% of Palau's corals, the coral in these, uh, in the rock islands, in the super reefs, didn't flinch. 
So these massive heat waves came through, and these corals were absolutely fine through multiple heat waves. And, now, and that was really interesting to us as scientists. So we went in there and ran a bunch of tests, and we discovered, we're discovering now that they're actually genetically different. But there's other super reefs, there's other kind of super reefs, and these are ones that we find in Thailand and in the North, Northern South China Sea. These super reefs are actually protected from heat waves by the ocean, by the particular, pe the peculiarities of the ocean in which they live. Um, they're protected by phenomena called internal waves. And what internal waves are, they're waves in the ocean that actually bring cool water from beneath the surface up onto the on, up onto the reefs. So when a heat wave comes through and heats up the whole ocean, these coral communities on these reefs don't even know. They don't even know it's getting hot because these internal waves are bringing are feeding them with cool water during the heat wave. It's kind of like air conditioning, natural air conditioning. Okay, so it's a very important story to tell. Sandy Troutwine. What, what's the aquarium's role in, in all of this in terms of telling the story? Well, we're the messenger, right? So uh, we like controversy, and I'm sure Super Corals, there's a lot of controversy behind some of the methods that uh, have been talked about regarding assisted evolution and that sort of thing. But I think our story is to really tell uh, the story of Super Corals, the important role that they play. And through our living exhibit, we will be uh, displaying Super Corals, and we'll be supporting other research scientists through the use of our live bank and how we can propagate corals, which we do here. And uh, we do that already through our uh, asexual pro coral propagation just to support our own exhibits, as well as sexual propagation through a partnership with SeaCor, where we're actively helping uh, to restore coral reefs in places like Guam and Palau. And um, so I'm really excited about our new exhibit, and I think this will be a great new endeavor. And we really are hoping to do this. And we, we're uh, now, we have a seat on the board of the Phoenix Island Protected Area, and they have their board meeting here later this month. And the Phoenix Islands is one, one area where there are a number of super corals, and if we can get an agreement from them that they will allow us to, or they will provide us with super corals for an exhibit, then we will make the commitment to invest in the infrastructure and the tanks that would be required to make a public exhibit and also the back of the house. So physics and, and biology is your area. Um, and, and we've heard about internal waves. But El Nino, the story of El Nino and, and some of the super corals in the Phoenix Islands, which I think is a very interesting one. Say, say a little bit about that, Mark. You're going to make me do it, not Anne. She's the real scientist here. Well, you know, El Nino's, we've seen these for, you know, in the fossil record for a long time. And it's, you know, whether they're increasing with intensity or frequency, it's still, it's a noisy signal. But we certainly know that they are affecting coral reefs. I think it's interesting to speculate why are some reefs, why aren't all reefs 
resilient. And they, we've had these bleaching events in the past. One would think evolution would select for them and eventually they would be the survivors. But clearly there's something longer term that's happening or more intense and more widespread, the sort of rapid change, you sort of raising the floor of all the temperature levels that must be driving this. I think, I don't know, Anne, you're a geologist, you can speculate on evolution too. I think it's an interesting question to understand why are these refugia and how can we use them? And so if you compare and contrast what happened in the Phoenix Islands in the last El Nino with the northern Great Barrier Reef, one got wiped out and the other didn't. And tell us a little bit about what you think the reasons are. So really what got us started on the Super East Initiative was in 2015, a massive El Nino, what we call a Super El Nino, uh, really lit up the global tropics in terms of heat. It got super, super hot and the, the world was really focused on the Northern Great Barrier Reef because obviously in the Great Barrier Reef, everybody knows it, it's iconic. Um, and as you, as you might know, uh, about up to 83% of the Northern Great Barrier Reef's corals would, were killed during the 2015 El Nino, which was um, the, the hottest on record. So, so the El Ninos are, are getting hotter, longer, and the extent of the El Nino heat wave, the geographic extent, is, is getting bigger. Um, so the, grape, the Northern Great Barrier Reef lost up to 83% of their corals, killed. Millions of corals, just dead in weeks. And a lot of people uh, started saying, and the media covered this obviously, and it was on TV, and it was, look what's happening to our corals, they're all dying, shed a tear for the Great Barrier Reef. And, and a lot of people were feeling really, really gloomy about the future of coral reefs and saying, you know, we're not gonna go on vacation on coral reefs anymore. Um, because they're all dead, and, and I, was, I was hearing these things, and I was listening um, to people saying this, and I was watching it on TV. And we'd actually been out that summer um, into the Central Pacific to Kiribati, one of our study sites in the Phoenix Islands Marine Protected Area, and the corals there hadn't actually responded the same way. Uh, they hadn't died, even though the heat that they saw was much more extreme than the Northern Great Barrier Reef has ever seen. So these corals were seeing extreme heat and they weren't dying. And we thought, we have to get this message out. We have to tell people that there are coral reefs that are still, that are surviving this that are defying the odds, that are fighting for their lives out there. And we have to help them. We have to tell their story. We have to protect them within marine protected areas. We have to bring them to land, into land-based aquaria, um, do everything we can to protect them. And isn't it true that the, with the Great Barrier Reef, the northern section, had never experienced temperatures exactly. as high? Yes. And those uh, in the Phoenix Islands, every five to seven years with an El Nino, they were exposed to high temperatures for hundreds, thousands of, of years. This is, so they, they had 
been exposed to these stresses, but then the stresses were relaxed, they would experience it again. This is part of my philosophy of management. I believe that if you apply, is this yours? Is this good? <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> if you apply, if you apply pressure in small doses and then relax it occasionally, uh, people will thrive under increased pressure. That's my, th that's my theory. The super people. The super well, yes, that's right. And Not everybody. And we all well, we all depend upon super people in our organizations. So while I've got you, you you've really spent most, nearly all your professional life at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, on Cape Cod. It can't be because of the great winters there. The great what? Winters. Oh, winters. <laughs> I know. I grew up in South Africa, and when I when I arrived in um, in uh, Cape Cod. In December, I think, of 95, when they had the worst snowstorm on, on record. And I got off the plane in a t-shirt and jeans from Cape Town, because it was our summer there. <laughs> and, I, and I had never seen anything like it. And so I actually, I have to admit, I stayed inside for two days, because I didn't know what to do with all the snow. Anyway, yeah, I, so I arrived. Um, uh, as a postdoc at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, I was incredibly lucky to, to be awarded a very prestigious postdoc. And I came over and I just fell in love with the Oceanographic Institution. And, um, and I was very lucky to have been able to stay. You know, one thing about the Oceanographic is all the scientists at Woods Hole are so motivated and so driven and so in love with what they do, and everybody's door is open. Um, I can go and talk to the oceanographers, I can go and talk to ge geologists, to the engineers. I can even talk to Mark sometimes. <laughs> um, and we all share a passion for the ocean. Uh, and we le we're learning from each other all the time. It's a fantastic place to, to work. And any idea that I want to pursue anywhere in the world and through any depth in the ocean, I can do that. At as long as you can get the money. Ocean. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think that is what makes, makes places like Hui, Hui uh, fabulous. And so we have all these stresses on coral reefs, dynamiting, runoff, uh, coastal development. But in, in the end, unless we can do something about climate change, it's only a matter of time. Is that, would you agree with that? I would, yeah. I think that's the biggest thing that contributes to habitat and our changes in our world. But when you read the reports about the projections, it's hard not to get sad and feel helpless, but I think we just need to continue working towards that goal and knowing that we can each make a difference in our daily life choices. So I'm hoping that we can continue to work to save coral reefs. They're an important part of our world. And I do think, though, relaxing some of these other stressors that are really under our control, our immediate control, it, it buys us time it, so you relieve some of that stress and, and Presumably, many coral reefs would be more able to deal with warming temperatures than they would if, if we don't relax these stressors. Yeah, I, I would add to that, too, though, that 
we were already had so altered so many ecosystems just because of fisheries. The cod fishery in Northwest Atlantic, uh, all of the large predator fish, you know, the high end of the food chain. Uh, we've taken that out and that is fundamentally altered. Add in climate change and it's now you've made ecosystems that are already ready under enormous stress, under even greater stress. I think the, an important question is like 20 years, we have 20, 21 years to make a difference, right? Before coral reefs are, begin to disappear. So how can we make the fastest change, I guess, the pa fastest positive change? That's really the question. I, I would offer, then it seems to me there are two parallel strategies. One is we have to do everything we can to reduce climate change. But secondly, we have to protect these coral, super corals, uh, and reduce the other stresses on, on coral reefs. What would you add to that? I absolutely agree. And we know enough about um, super reefs, how they work now, that we're actually making models um, to project where they are. So we're not just go, you know, we're not just blindly putting our finger on a map and saying, oh, let's try that place. We actually have a strategy for finding where they are. And we can put circles around them, around where the super reefs will be. And if, if um, we can protect those super reefs, which are across the global oceans, uh, from other activities which are still going on, like dredging, dynamiting, cyanide poisoning, if we can withdraw those pressures, then I believe that there are enough super reefs out there that can repopulate uh, a de the, de the devastated reefs. All in parallel with the activities to reduce the emissions and, and keep um, and stabilize the climate. Um, we have to do both in parallel. We have to do it in parallel, not in series. I agree. Let's bring the house lights up, and we'll take some questions from the audience. You can direct them to any one on the panel or the entire. I, Bob, I knew you'd ask the first one. It's a, we'll bring you a microphone. And is this to an individual or to the panel? It's, it's to the panel. Well, first of all, thank you for your passion. That's really counts. Um, as you identify these super reefs, are you finding that they run north and south or east and west, or are they within a current band? Is, is there any uh, pattern to them, in other words? Um, so, so far, uh, we found three different kinds of super reefs. The ones that are protected by internal waves. And we've actually being able to go to those places and confirm that the super reefs are there. But we also know uh, where all the internal wave fields are and which coral reefs are in internal wave fields. So we know where those coral reefs are, where those super reefs are. Then there's another kind of coral reef, like the ones in the, in the central tropical Pacific, like in Kiribati, which because they've been seeing El Nino heat waves for hundreds of thousands of years, they've developed strategies to deal with it. So we know that, that across the central tropical Pacific, um, that includes Kiribati, the, the Phoenix Islands Marine Protected Area, and also the Pacific Remote Marine National Monument, which is actually US owned, um, there are super reefs there. And then the Palau super reefs are, exist because the water there is chronically hot. 
any larvae, coral larvae, that come, are coming into the Palau Rock Islands to settle have to have the genetic makeup to be able to deal with that heat. So you, you establish super reef communities that are genetically adapted just because it's chronically hot there. Now with our hydronomic models, we can predict which reefs across the global oceans have chronically hot areas which would house super reefs. And we started to do that as well. Is there a comprehensive funded effort to map out the super, corals, super coral reefs around the world ocean? We have a, we have a comprehensive strategy, yeah, yes. The funding effort, the funding campaign is really one foundation at a time at this point, um, which, does make it, which does make it slow. Right. Um, but it's all, it's all dependent on funding. Yes. Go, go ahead. So I keep, I read about uh, coral reefs in Hawaii, and there they talk about sunscreen. You've not mentioned sunscreen. Is that a, just a local Hawaii thing, or is that really a stress on coral reefs? That's a really good question because there has been quite a bit of conversation in the media about the effects of sunscreens on reefs. And I think right now it's really a theory. So folks, um, if scientists have put um, corals in tanks in experiments and expose them to the ingredients in sunscreen and there's an effect on the corals. Whether that's actually happening in the, you know, out on the real reefs where the sunscreen is, is impacting uh, coral reefs in the, in the actual ocean is still a question and it's probably quite difficult to prove. Nevertheless, I would say that relative to the impact of global climate change, sunscreen is a minor, a minor issue. I think we want, to t we want to, in every case, take care and be aware of what we're doing all the time in our daily living. There are sunscreens available that are not uh, poisonous to corals. Use those, you know, even if we don't necessarily know what the impact will be or is. But if I had to prioritize what's the biggest threat to coral reefs? Ocean warming is a mass killer right. of corals in a very short time. It's the most efficient mass killer of corals period. And some of these others, I think, can be distractions from the, the real problem. It's a little bit like uh, having cosmetic surgery when you, you have a life-threatening illness and uh, you're not treating the life-threatening illness. Go ahead, Francis. Save me. Oh, oh, oh you're over there. Okay. <laughs> So I know corals grow very slowly. If all of the non-super reefs are to disappear by 2040, how long would it take for the super reefs to repopulate what we lost? I don't think cor corals grow slowly. Okay. Um, some corals, the Acroporas and the Montiparas, they can um, form uh, colonies this big in a couple of years. Um, so some, in, in, in fact, that's one of the strategies that these coral reefs in the El Nino, in the bullseye of the El Nino have developed. They um, specialize in these very fast growing corals. Uh, so the, when an El Nino comes in, they get knocked out and then the corals come back and grow really, really fast. And then El Nino comes in, 
they get knocked out. Corals come back, grow really fast. So in some corals actually grow really, really fast. Uh, so do you think then there would, wouldn't be like a gap in world corals? They would have enough time to repopulate as the other ones are being decimated by climate change? Uh, what do you mean, do they have enough time? I'm, I'm just wondering if, if, if the idea is that the super corals are going to repopulate the missing reefs, how long is that going to take? And I, that, that's a really good question. Um, it's going to be different depending on where you are. Um, some areas, the cor corals grow really, really fast. In other areas, like Bermuda, actually, the corals grow more slowly because there's less light and the water's cold and they just don't grow in the winter. So I think it really depends on uh, where you are. One of the ideas of the super reefs is that if we allow the thermally tolerant coral reefs to live <laughs> and don't kill them by dredging or cyaniding or blowing them up by other means, um, if we let them live and produce billions and billions of larvae, those larvae care are genetically tolerant, uh, thermally tolerant. So they'll carry that characteristic with them wherever they go. And when they repopulate the devastated reefs, the reefs will be more, more thermally tolerant than they were before. You sounded a little bit like Carl Sagan there for a minute. <laughs> billions and billions. <laughs> Sandy or Mark, do you well, want to add? billions. <laughs> no, no. Well, just to that point, I would just say that I, I, there are certain massive corals that do grow a little bit slower than uh, a lot of branching species. So different coral species have different growth rates. And I think with super corals, we're, we probably need to face the fact that the, you know, our coral reefs are changing every day. And as we move more towards this finish line of 2040 or the end of the century, I think we can all pretty much accept the fact that coral reefs are, they won't be the same species diversity or collection or composition that we've seen there previously, that it will be different. But hopefully we can have robust reefs that support a diversity of fishes and other invertebrates that make that ecosystem healthy and support that local community. So I think that's what we're working towards, hopefully in the end. Okay, are we ready for another one? Okay, go ahead. Hi, um, my name is Amy. I'm going to be um, an elementary school teacher hopefully in the next year or so. And currently I'm learning a lot about teaching science and for one of my um, homework assignments I had to come to one of these events and I decided, <laughs> wow, wow. Um, otherwise? <laughs> I'm sorry? Oh, okay. So I was like, wow, I don't know anything about super reefs. Let's go to this one. So I brought me and my boyfriend here, um, and he's tagging along because he's super supportive. Anyways, um, what I wanted to ask is, um, I can tell you're very passionate about coral reefs, and um, I also think it's very contagious, and now I want to care more about coral reefs. But how do I get my students in the future to care about the ocean and um, super reefs? Who wants to start on that? I think you're a good person. Well, I'll start, but I would. Because you're pretty contagious. I think one of, <laughs> one of the things, to bring them to the aquarium. Kids are naturally interested when they see fish, different colors, different kinds of movements, different shapes. And, and I would also try to take them to the ocean. It's surprising how many people who live in Long Beach 
have never been to the ocean, they had never seen the ocean, and I think kids pick up on the, the enthusiasm also of their parents, but I think bring, bringing kids or bring your class to, to the aquarium, we have lots of school kids who come here every year, we'd love to have, have yours come. What would the rest of you add? I, I think that's, that, that would have been the first answer I would have given, the second is that there are people like Bob Ballard, okay, he's done more than find the, found the, find the Titanic, but he has this whole inner space center and a whole classroom teacher program where he really tries to bring the excitement of ocean exploration to everybody, not just kids who happen to live within 30 miles of the ocean. He grew up in Kansas, so he knows what it's like. So I think that there are a lot more programs that try and bring the ocean to people. I have two children, and um, I think that you are their inspiration. You are the most important person, I think, in terms of their education and being inspired uh, in nature and science. My, ch my son came home one day from school when he was six, and he was completely in love with Pluto. <laughs> the planet or the dog? The planet. <laughs> and his goal is to go to Pluto in his lifetime. And he's hung on to, and that came from his teacher. His teacher inspired him. So you have an important job. I would suggest starting with Nemo and then working to Dory, <laughs> no. Essentially start with what they can connect with. So I, you know, as much as I hear Nemo every day, people do connect when they see clownfish, but you could start by saying, well, clownfish may not be around much longer if they don't have the coral reef habitat that they need. So start with something that they connect with. And, and kids are naturally curious and they love to explore. And so you'll be teaching a, with the next generation of st science standards. Uh, and so rather than, me, than being didactic, it encourages asking questions and, and so on. So yes, I think uh, you as a teacher will have a major responsibility. All right. Uh, so I have kind of a two-part question. One, I have seen uh, a couple news articles about this plan to put giant underwater fans on the Great Barrier Reef to bring cold water up to cool them, and I want to know if that is actually going to be a viable option. And my second question is whether or not it's populate to take the pop possible to take the larvae that are genetically modified and to bring them to the reefs that need that genetic modification, and if that's something that's being worked on. I can answer the second part of that. Hold question. the microphone closer, please. Go ahead. But I wonder about the fans. I mean, how do you fan 2,000 kilometers of reef? I have read that. Sounds like a great idea, but I wouldn't want to invest in it. Right. <laughs> but well, somebody is. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like the physics is not your friend. Uh, moving water takes a lot of energy, and the ocean is a really unforgiving place. Like your internal waves. Yeah, like the natural internal. Yeah. That's tilt. 
I'm not sure the physics pencils out on that one. Sounds like cold fusion to me. <laughs> but it, do, it does tell you, I mean, the, the lengths that people will go to protect their natural resources. That's an interesting, that's an observation. I'll, I'll answer the second part. Um, that's a really good question. And it's one of the goals of uh, reef restoration or coral farming is to actually pick the strong corals and then farm them and, and, and restore um, reefs that way. The, 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 the challenge there is that while you have larvae that are thermally tolerant or have higher thermal thresholds than the average, um, they are also genetically um, engineer, uh, gen the, 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 their genes are adapted to a lot of other uh, conditions in the environment, not just heat. So for example, um, the corals in the Palau Rock Islands, which are genetically more thermally tolerant, uh, they are also adapted to the particular light conditions in the Rock Island, to the low wave conditions, and to the specific predatory fish that occupy that region. And the corals have natural defense, have evolved natural defenses against those fish that live in that area. Now, when we try to transplant corals from the Rock Islands to another area of Palau to re repopulate uh, that reef, um, uh, the, the, the predatory fish actually specifically and on the barrier reef specifically targeted those corals because those corals hadn't evolved the specific defenses for those fish. What nature does, okay, that's what we do. So we pick a few corals and we put them out and they get predated on. What nature does, it sends out billions. It, I'm not, I'm not, that is not a hyperbole. Billions of larvae all thermally tolerant, but with a diversity of other adaptations. So amongst those larvae, there'll be some that can deal with those predatory fish, some that can deal with the new light conditions, some that can deal with the new wave conditions. And then when they land in their new world, on the new reef, nature will select for those genotypes that can deal with that specific environment. That's why protecting large, diverse assemblages of thermally tolerant corals, the super reefs, is so important because the larvae that they produce are, have a diversity of genotypes that you need to deal with all the environments that are out there. Does that make let's, sense? Let's take the question back there, and this is going to be our, our last. Um, my name is Frances, and I want to thank you for the film. Um, I was really intrigued. Um, when you were speaking, talking about how the mother released the larva out her mouth, and I was wondering if you've maybe captured that in film, and if you can some kind of way, it'll really motivate, I believe, children and adults. And I want to share, by having the captioning on the film that you have, it's awesome because there's children and adults that have neurocognitive challenges that they can hear, but they they are able to understand and follow better by being able to read and hear at the same time. So I want to commend you for that. And I want to find out what you plan on doing with this. But um, 
all the questions that they've asked, that's some of the things I wanted to bring up, but you mentioned about the livelihood of so many people with the corals, and I think it'd be real helpful to really have maybe sharing part of that is, I understand corals, some of them are used to make medication, and I was wondering about the plastics and medications that's in the water and the effect that may have on the corals. But I'd like to, I think that people might get the message better on protecting the corals if they understand the impact it's having on mankind that use it part of, of, of what they do for their livelihood. Thank you very much. Who wants to start that? Uh, well, you know, I think uh, the whole goal with our super coral exhibit is to address many of the issues that you bring up, Francis. And it's, it's tough because you don't want to bombard people with all the bad news, of course, but we obviously do have a lot of struggles out there. And I do think that the, you know, through the exhibit, we hope to highlight how super corals and coral reefs are important to those island nations that depend on coral reefs, and that will certainly be part of our interpretation for the exhibit. But yeah, they will be the first to feel the effects of this, especially combined with rising sea level projections. Um, so I think thinking about their livelihood and their welfare in the future is a big part of this. And pharmaceuticals and all of the rest. Do you want to add anything in to what Sandy has said? Uh, I, I, I made a separate movie where I went around a, a few coral reef island nations and interviewed people about how they, th their perspective on climate change and what they had seen in their lifetimes. And um, I think we need to figure out a way of pulling that into this movie, the, the people's perspective into this movie. Unfortunately, we only had six minutes. It was originally five minutes, and it was quite a fight to get it to six minutes. Um, but, and I also had a conversation with, a, with an animator the other day about um, maybe animating the, the birthing process, because it's just so tough to, to capture on film. So yeah. So before we move into the ocean science, and I want to just come back to your question. And I agree with Mark. I don't think the physics pencils out. But I think we all always have to be open to options. There are some crazy options being considered right now, for example, to, to compensate for the rapidly melting Arctic. And they in, include taking the, the meltwater from the melting ice and pumping it back up on top of the ice and, and having it freeze in the winter. The physics does pencil out on this. And, and there's another one to build a dam around uh, parts of Antarctica that would prevent the ice from going into the ocean, causing sea level rise. It would cost hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. But the cost of the loss of infrastructure, coastal infrastructure globally, is going to be many trillions of, of dollars. We had a meeting in Sacramento on Friday, and I'm on the Ocean Science Trust, and the projection there of the loss of coastal property is in the trillions of dollars only for California. So I think we have to think, really think boldly and uh, not dismiss any of these ideas out of hand. So let's all move into the Ocean Science Center. It's right next door. Um, and there are refreshments, I believe. And then we're going to watch the science on a sphere. <laughs> <laughs>